we we both come from a very similar kind of reason as to why we started looking into this because you came at it from a a fear of death and so did I. Ah, mine, yes. mine. That's right. I remember reading or hearing that with your talk. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it came about with um, anxiety disorder and depression, which started off with a fear of death because I was always very materialistic. I was brought up with a atheistic background, not not fundamental atheism, but just you know, atheism in terms of I just never really was interested in whether there was a God or not. Sure. Um, and I always believed, as did my mum and dad, that essentially when you die, you die and that's it. And that idea yeah. terrified me. Yeah. But I, yeah. I believed it because it made logical sense. Um, and then yeah. since the anxiety and the depression, which caused a huge fear of death, I began looking into it a bit more through necessity rather than interest, although the interest mm-hmm. did build. And that's where I began looking at the evidence and the different areas of it and started to really get an interest into consciousness and life after death and that sort of thing. Yes, yes. And and it is it is a similar story, you know, you and I, you and I had this very similar story. You were brought up with an atheistic background as well, weren't you? Yes, I was. And and I also was terrified when my mom told me that um, after death, you just disappear. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thought. You see a lot of people that say they don't want there to be an afterlife. They want to just vanish into nothingness forever. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, mm-hmm. I think that's a terrifying concept because forever... Yeah. If you just try and imagine forever, it's a very right. long time plus right. plus some to yeah. never ever be aware again. We can't even begin to understand what that must right. be like, and that that terrifies me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I wanted to have significance. And you did a lot of research for um, Doctor Jeffrey oh, Long. Escapes me, Doctor Jeffrey Long with the NDRF. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's um, right. And he created a collection of near-death experiences and other um, similar phenomenal oh, yes. experiences. I, he has thousands now. Um, yes. I would think five or 6,000 people have sent in their experiences. So mm-hmm. that's, that's really a, a big, um, a big uh, base to collect from. Mm-hmm. So what was your role in, in researching those? But was my role well? Um, he he asked for a volunteer, and I said yes, I would do it. Um, and so what I did was I would take each one of the stories or the experiences, and I would tear them apart, tear the report apart, and find out how many people had um, a death experience. I mean, how many people went through a, a tunnel, and how many people mm. went to um, an Earth-like kind of existence, or some? Uh, how many people um, tele- telepathy? Did they have telepathy? And what about hearing? And you know, so there was just a huge list of questions, and so I would tear that apart and make a. Um, count them so i actually there was a program and i would enter the program in saying that this person had a tunnel and this person saw a light and this person saw you know so each thing i would report it and Mm -hmm. so that's what the that's what the research was and when i first started to do the research i was pretty well mostly like most people interested in 
what happened, what the people were talking about. And I'd already read quite a few, but but uh, I still wanted to know more. And um, but I, after a while, I pretty well knew what happened. And uh, then I became much more interested in the deeper kind of spiritual learning and lessons that were being brought back. And that's mm-hmm. that's what my book is about. Yes, and you mentioned in your book um, your own spiritual experiences, which which took place. Um, so, do, do can you briefly explain what what happened? Sure. Um, I the first well, I've had several. So, I think you're talking mostly about the one. Um, there was three different experiences. That's one at the beginning of the book. Um, yeah. There were three different experiences. <clears throat> sorry, and. Um, the experiences were linked, but at the time, I didn't know that. And I did certainly didn't know I was going to have three or I would have recorded. Actually, I would have known how many days between and so on. Anyway, mm-hmm. I had the first experience. I was doing dishes and at the kitchen sink. And there's a window above the sink. And I'm looking out in the backyard. And um, there's an apple tree, a crab apple tree there. And... Um, and I really wasn't thinking about anything that I can even know. I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest. But anyway, um, wasn't anything important. And uh, all of a sudden, I became the tree, and the tree was me. There was no separation, no difference between us. You know, even the life form within that tree and me was identical. And so... I then became the bird that was in the tree and the bug the bird was going to eat. I became fish and grass and any kind of life form that I thought of, I became it. And that was fascinating. I was just absolutely blown away by it. I had read something like that because I'd been studying various spiritual kinds of concepts since I was in my mid-teens. So I had read about um, cosmic consciousness. I just didn't think I would experience it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when that happened, I I was absolutely thrilled. You know, it only happened maybe, I don't, maybe a minute, but probably mm-hmm. not even that long. But it felt like about a minute. And um and it was just such a great experience. I was very thrilled. But, you know, I, I no answer for it. I, all of a sudden, there I was washing dishes again. And so that was the end of that. Um, the next experience, as I said, was days later. And I don't know how many days. And um, this time, I'm wiping fingerprints off the hall walls. And... Um, all of a sudden, I'm not looking at the fingerprints, or at least I'm not looking at the wall. I'm seeing an atom at, with the electrons, the, proto, uh, the nuclei in the middle and the electrons going around. And then I saw that expand to our solar system with the sun and the planets going around. And then that expanded to a galaxy with the nuclei or the center of the galaxy and everything spinning. And that just kept getting bigger and bigger until I was looking at the micro and the macro universe. And throughout this whole thing, it was almost like my brain had been taken over, actually. But throughout this whole thing, I was getting the 
the message, I guess I would call it messages, although it was more like a knowing kind of thing, that this didn't just happen, that there was uh, order and planning and an intelligence behind all of this. And um, that was really quite, quite interesting for me. But then the next thing I got, I got a message uh, and it said that my being was intricately connected with the operation of the universe. Well, when I heard that, I did not, that was not a good thing. I was not happy because I felt like it meant that I was going to be responsible somehow. And how could I be? I mean, I'm no bigger than the speck of dust when you come to the whole universe. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was not um happy with that message at all. And then I, that was the end of it. That was the end. But when I got that message, it was so harsh. I mean, I, not that that's the wrong word. It was so strong inside of me that it was, I knew I couldn't deny it. It was an absolute fact, but I still didn't like it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So then I, um, a few days later again, and now I'm in the living room, picking up toys from my kids and um and all of a sudden there was a presence in the room with me and I felt this presence I couldn't see anything like all I could see was the living room but I still felt this presence there and uh, then I felt more love than I can ever describe it was like this huge enormous blanket of love was being wrapped around me and I just I just felt all this deep deep love and then after the love I heard message oh and I felt like I was connected somehow I was connected to this whatever the presence mm-hmm. and then I heard words in my ear very clear that said this is where you came from and this is where you will return <clears throat> so that took away my fear of death right away because if I was going to go to something beautiful and I'm loving, then what was I afraid of, you know? Um, yeah. And then after that, aside from walking three feet off the ground, I was so I was so excited and thrilled about it. Nothing bothered me. <clears throat> Sorry, um, but uh, but but I was so excited about that experience. And um, but after that, I I used to bite my fingernails down so deep that there was no nail I could grab anymore. And Mm -hmm. um, it was just just horrible, ugly. And um, so after that, I looked down one day and I had nails. I had long, (laughs) well, not long, but I was growing nails and I stopped biting. So that was Without even noticing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even notice until one day I looked down and there was nails. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the... These experiences, you hear a lot um, of experiences, especially through the internet of people that experience this oneness. But to me, from as a someone who was brought up with a materialistic outlook, it's difficult to to I suppose understand what that experience must be. That people that say like like you suddenly I became everything and I became this. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that experience yeah. because if if someone was to say that, I'd think right well. For example, if you were to say that you became the, the bird, as you say, I'd be yeah. thinking, so she then suddenly was that bird from its point of view. 
yeah. and the tree from the from its point of view but it's a tree how can it have a point of view this sort of thing so yeah, how yeah. how would you describe that experience if, well, if you could I don't could. know that I can explain it because you're right it's so extra you know not what one, one would explain or expect but people who have death experiences almost everybody has the same feelings. When they get out of their body, almost right away, they start to feel that they're connected with everything. Um, some people don't go through a, a tunnel. They uh, might wind up in the outer space floating around. And those people um, in the outer space uh, will feel like they, they're part of it, that those planets and those suns and stars and whatever are them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no way you, c- I don't know how I can put that into into yeah. words, except that that's a very common experience with people who have had death experiences. Mm-hmm. So let, let's say, so you're, you're stood at the kitchen, looking out the window, doing the dishes, um, and then suddenly this experience o- overcomes you. Is it a feeling? What, what happens to your sense of sight, your sense of sound and, and everything else? Does, does that change or is it? I don't think I heard a thing. Uh, you know, I never have, have thought about that, but mm-hmm. when I, I think everything just disappeared. And it was um, because I knew I was washing dishes, but I was completely unconscious of it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even think I, I just stood there, you know. I was like I was, oh, taken in, taken in by it all. And I can't describe the, the feeling because it's been so long. It, that mm-hmm. was in '73 mm-hmm. that I had that ex, that experience. So it, I can't describe it. I'm sorry. I just know that it was just a knowing. It was a yeah. deep knowing within that this was the way it really was. And I know a lot of these experiences are very much beyond our ability to use language to describe. And that's the most common thing yeah. with the near-death experience yeah. Yeah. and other and, experiences. And one of the things that, just to interject here, people who do meditation on a regular basis will have these kind of experiences too. Mm-hmm. The The voice that you heard that mm-hmm. mentioned that this is where you come mm-hmm. from, this is where you'll return to, was was that was that as, as commonly experienced kind of a tele- telepathic connection or was it more an audible voice you heard mm. uh, it was it was both <clears throat> excuse me um when i was looking at the um wall and i you know the the atoms and the planets and things that was telepathic mm-hmm. but when i was in the living room with the toys and things and that, that presence there, that was verbal. I heard it in my ear, my right ear. What, what so, did the atoms, sorry, what did the atoms and everything look like? Was that an, like an image in your mind uh, or was it, did it look physical as anything else? It didn't, I didn't see anything. I just saw my living room. Uh, but, but what I did, but what I felt was energy. I felt like it was positive energy force. That was what it felt like. Some kind of loving energy force. Okay. So you were looking at, at your wall, and then what was the experience with the atoms and the the universe and the, the well, galaxies? It, it, well, that, that, that was um, telepathic, and that's 
one where I was telling you that um, I was getting these this understanding, I think that's the best way to put it, um, mm -hmm. an understanding that this didn't just happen by accident, that the planets and the stars and the universe is has order and planning and everything is, is planned. And there's mm -hmm. a great intelligence behind all of that. And I think that the message that I heard that my being was intricately connected means everybody's being. Every one of us is intricately connected. It, mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. And again, that's a very common experience amongst the near-death experiences. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, the oneness. Right? That's what people talk about. Is the, They'll call it the oneness, or mostly that's the words they use, the unity, the, you know, but they most often will call it. Sometimes now it's being called non-duality. Mm-hmm. So when you were doing your research, looking at the experiences for Dr. Jeffrey Long, how yes. did you ever come across any um, cases that seemed illegitimate? And if so, how, oh. how could you tell the difference? Certainly, yes. Not too many on his, not, not too many there, actually, to be honest. There's very few that are... Um, that are on his, it, it's the odd one. And, and, you know, you wonder about them, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. It just doesn't, that kind of thing wouldn't happen. And um, so then it's things like, um, one of the things is judgment. It's a big, big, big one, because people who believe in judgment feel that that's what should be there. And so mm -hmm. they will report that, even though that's not possible. It's literally not possible to feel judgment. But um, anyway, so that's one of the big things that um, that people will talk about is, uh, and and sometimes they get too fanciful, fancy, you know, like they're yeah, too yeah. fanciful, and yeah. and and you wonder, you think, oh wait a minute, that's that. I've never heard that before, or you know, some some of them they have other elements because there are universal. Okay, so I should say first of all, no two people have the same death experience. So when one person has one death experience, doesn't doesn't mean that it's the same as everybody else's. That's one point. But there are universal parts of the experience, like for example, telepathy or traveling by thought or being able to see 360 degrees. Those are just small ones, but those are part of the of the experience. And so when yeah. people report, if they don't include some of those universal things, I'm starting to think, hmm, maybe, you know. But mm -hmm. as I go on, and one of the places I do find a lot of uh, false ones is uh, on, on YouTube. Quite a few um, on YouTube are not quite, it's yes. not quite real. So, yes, there are certainly fundamental parts of, of the death experience that are shared equally, although we we do see that there are cultural differences between the mm -hmm. content of near-death experiences. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Many many, yeah. many that are sceptical to this kind of experience would say, well, if they're all going to the same place, they would expect to see, we would expect that they see exactly the same thing. Is is in if we go to Australia, if we go to see the yeah. Sydney Opera House, for example, we'd see exactly the same thing regardless of our culture. But that doesn't seem to be the case in near death experiences. What would you say to, right. to that? 
Yeah, because it's it, it's a spiritual experience. It's not um, a physical one. And so mm-hmm. that's that's one of the reasons. The other reason, and this is hard for most people to understand, although I think more and more people are starting to get it, um, because we take an active role. We are creators. That is my big message <laughs> with my book and so on, is that we are creators, you and I and everybody else in the world. We create our life, and we continue to create when we leave here. And so we create our death experiences up to the time that we enter into the light. Mm -hmm. People who continue on and don't come back enter into the light, this big, huge, amazing, blow-your-mind light. And the light is so beautiful that it um, it just it's it's amazing, and it's 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 like what I described. It's filled with love, and power, and um, anyway, it's a it's a being. It's a live being that will communicate with them, and and so on. And people will ask, "Are you God?" And the the being will say. Um, well, I'm the creator. <laughs> I'm the one that made all this, that kind of thing. They never use it. Never uses any of our words to mm-hmm. identify itself like God or Allah or any of those words. It just doesn't use mm-hmm. those kind of language. But it does say, "Well, yeah, I'm, I I created things or I created that, whatever." Yes. So that's one of the things that it does. It's very clear about, but. When we enter into the light, the people that enter in and stay there, or the people that have entered and come back, some of those have done that as well. That's a beautiful experience. And then they find out that um, they become the light. They actually are the light. And then when they start, when they stay there, they become the creators, and they start creating and they're the light. They are the light. And so that's that's amazing. That's just, I think, blow your mind kind of stuff. And um, I think it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yes, and it's very similar to the kind of experience you hear in out-of-body experiences or what's commonly known these days as, as astral projection, in yeah. which um, individuals are able to leave their body and create at will um, into into. Exactly. What, what they so we believe are becomes the case. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Exactly. So it seems that people who have near death experience or actual death experiences, which they seem to be more, and out of body experiences of take place in a very similar environment. No. Um no. a death experience is a death. Mm-hmm. Okay. People their heart stops, their their organs break down, they are dead. And then they have the experience. Um, people who are astral projecting or out of body, out of body experiences, I see those as a spontaneous something or other that happens spontaneously. And you, you know, you're looking down at yourself all of a sudden, and mm-hmm. then it only lasts for maybe a doubt that it lasts a whole minute, and the next thing you're back in your body again, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing is spontaneous. The person who has them are usually they're surprised by them because they've never expected anything like that. But astral projection is when a person teaches themselves 
to leave their body. And then they can, they're there, they know what, all of, what, what to experience. And if they've done it enough times, then they have control over the experience and they can yeah. create what they want, like just what you said. They're, they become yeah. the creators. So that is true. And we can look to people like Robert Monroe, who's a pioneer in that kind of area. Yes. To see that sort yes, of experience. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So um, what one of the common, sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, it's okay. Okay. Um, one of the common um, returns that you hear from people about near-death experiences, well, they weren't really dead because they came back. Yeah, the brain was yeah. still working. And how can we trust <laughs> the experience of a dying brain to assume that it was real? Yes. Well, the brain continues to work for a half hour to three quarters of an hour, and that's the brain stem that mm -hmm. leads down into the spine. So it's not the whole brain. It's just the brain stem that has electrical activities that continue. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can revive that person when those that brain stem is, has electricity. It, it has nothing to do with being alive, okay? But mm -hmm. anyway, it doesn't matter because... That lasts for about half hour to three quarters of an hour. And after that, there's nothing. It's gone. There's no, mm -hmm. no activity at all. But some, many, many of these experiences last much, much longer than three quarters of an hour. They last for hours and hours. They've anywhere from four to, well, it isn't unusual for people to wake up in the morgue. And um, and they 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 may either be in rigor mortis or they may have they're on their way. You know they're they're yes, starting yeah. to get rigor the process mortis. is started. And that, yeah, yeah, and that takes thirteen to fourteen hours for rigor mortis to fully set in. So that that's a long time to be you know gone. And so I think that can't be the breaking down of the brain. It can't be the chem chemistry, and it can't be hallucinations. It just doesn't make sense. Another thing is that people who have had death experiences come back with information that they couldn't possibly know. You know, they have information on people that have been dead for years and years, or they have private information for somebody that that person doesn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, it, it's just information that they couldn't possibly know. They yeah, can known as veridical perception. Yes, yes. And mm -hmm. so I don't think, I think death experiences are a medical situation. That's mm -hmm. where they belong. A, a miracle, did you say, sorry? No, uh, medical. A medical. Medical. Yes. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. that, I think, I think that I would love to see the medical profession do a thorough uh, research, proper research. And I want to, every single person who has died and returned, whether they had an experience or they didn't have an experience and, and what chemistry, what medicines or, or chemistries did they have put into their bodies? And, um, you know, just all kinds of things. How long were they gone for? Uh, would it have been passed when the brain had stopped working? And so on. Because we really need a serious investigation on that. 
we do and I'd agree that although yeah, I suppose the only issue is when you bring in the the moral question of, of whether it's moral to do that to someone who's dying and whether it'll be funded, which it probably wouldn't be. Um Oh no, I meant the people who've come back. The people who have died and returned. Oh, okay. I see. Do research on them. Yes. <laughs> although the only way you could gather the data on their brains brain state and the chemicals that they um, that, that's present there would be to um, hook them up to these machines while they're in the process of dying, effectively. No, no, because um, it's written down what they gave the doc. The doctors have given to the patient, so it's written down what's. I mean, these mm-hmm. would be ho- um, hospital records. It wouldn't be somebody who died in a car crash or, you know, yeah. some other kind yeah. of accident or illness or something. It would be somebody who had died in the hospital where mm-hmm. everything is re- recorded, how the time of death, how long they were gone, what medicines they were given, if they were operated on, what um, what were they given, you know, for um, to put them under and all of yeah. those things they need to they need to have a thorough examination mm-hmm. although that that wouldn't be able to show you what the brain was doing and what chemicals were being released in the brain naturally at that time so oh, I mean, it, although oh. although it would be very good to, to see that kind of thing it's still the skeptical people would still be saying well we can't see inside the brain there might be something going on we can't record and that's, I think that's the difficulty. Yeah, well, there are yeah, studies, yeah. there are studies yeah. such as Sampani's Aware study, which are um, in process, in which he's, he's putting up, um, I, I believe he's still doing it, he's putting up targets for people to see when they're out of body. Sure. Um, I mean, if yeah, I was yeah. to come out, of, if I was to come out of my body, I wouldn't be looking at that. I'd be freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know how successful that, that will be. There are um, doctors such as Penny Sartori, who's done a lot of studies, Pim Van Lommel, of course. Yes, um, yes. All of which have very, very strong evidence, in my opinion, to suggest that, that it, it does happen. Although people will contest that, you know, we can't well, I, we can't measure the brain. We can't do this. We can't do that. Yeah, I think there are there are always going to be skeptics that won't accept no matter what. If they don't believe it, they don't believe it. And I actually admire, well, not admire, but I appreciate them because we need people who are skeptics. We need skeptics. Yes. In the world. Absolutely. So, yeah, I don't you mind see, being skeptics at all. It keeps us on track, you know, it makes us prove our point. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, the argument that, that we have mentioned already that the brain is still active to me is a very weak argument. And I saw a very good analogy in, in one of the Facebook groups. Maybe you saw it as well. Um, having a, a television set completely destroyed, although one led light on the motherboard is flashing. And that's to compare with the brainstem minor mm. activity taking place in the brainstem. And it's to assume that just because that led light is still flashing, the television has mm. the potential to create an image and sound similar to the way that the brain must be able to produce hallucination with that tiny, tiny amount. It doesn't make sense. And I thought that was a very, yeah. very good analogy. Yeah, yeah. And so what would, what would um, if, uh, if it's past the three quarters of an hour, which is not normal, it's usually a half hour, but I'm stretching it a bit there. Um, so if it's past, say, one hour that the person is gone and you know mm-hmm. that the brain has stopped, um, 
then there can't be anything else happening in the brain. No, you can't no. argue the brain then. I think the only thing you could say at that point is one of three options, either A, the person is lying, <laughs> Um, two, the person is exaggerating. The maybe they weren't completely dead. Maybe they weren't in the morgue. That sort of thing. Or three, oh. the experience. Or three, the experience well, took quite... place as as the brain was still somewhat active. Yeah. Before but they that, went into the that's, that's why I say it has to be the people in the hospital. So all of that is recorded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, I'm sure you know of Dr. Eben Alexander. Yes. Someone who I've had the privilege of speaking to. Um, oh, good. And his his um, experience is a remarkable one because it is very, very illustrative and very similar yeah. to actual death that takes place yeah. because his his neocortex was completely ravaged by um, E. coli, right. gram-negative gram bacterial meningitis, which stops any function of the neocortex, kills it effectively. Yeah. And during this experience... Or during that time, he had this experience which seemed to be validated between the time since he went into coma mm -hmm. and then when he, um, between then and when he woke up, during which time he was his brain wasn't functioning from what the doctors and the medical records show. Um, and the only real argument that the skeptics and the um, people that rebuke his experience can say is that he was exaggerating for effect. Um, and bring up his his past mm. supposed errors in, in, in his practice yeah. without actually looking at the experience itself. Yeah, yeah. But his yeah. is a very good example. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. That's true. Do you know that there's a, a, people who are blind and deaf um, can hear and see when they're out of their body? Yes, that, that is something that... that very much interests me um yes the, the thing that i wonder is how if these people are uh, or take the, the blind people for example we we can only really go on their word that they're seeing what they see but we Not don't know they what they're it. but then how can if they, they describe something without ever having the experience of seeing but they they may they i don't know that but i do know that um they can watch an operation and tell the doctors who came, who went, what they looked like, mm -hmm. what they were thinking, and what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly give an example of one such experience? Well, um, I'm thinking blind people, a blind mm -hmm. person. That uh, There's um, a great book that, oh, it's written ages ago, but in the 90s, but, but it's still a really good um, investigation was on blind people that had had death, near-death experiences and came back. And mm -hmm. uh, they talk about being able to see all kinds of things. And in ways that I don't understand, they knew what they were seeing. Now, I don't understand that either, because if they were blind, how could they describe it? Um, exactly, people, yeah. But perhaps they were blind later in life and not right from birth. Perhaps. You know, so they would, but they, they've been able to, um, but anyway, the book is called Mind, no, Blind, no, wait, just a minute. Mind Sight, that's it, M-I-N-D, Sight. Dr. Kenneth Ring and mm -hmm. um, Sharon Cooper, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, 
um, that's a that's a book that talks completely about. That's all they talk about is blind people, and there are blind um, experiences on NDERF as well. So mm-hmm. if anybody wanted to look up them, they would be able to find them. Great. So what what um, was it after your many years of, of researching the near death experience? What aspect of it? was the most convincing to you that they are genuine experiences beyond hallucination, beyond? Yeah. Well, one of the things that, and I mentioned this in the book, one of the things that that doctors have to go by is death that happens in the hospitals. And usually a person who has died in the hospital the crash test, uh, you know, is, what do you call it? The crash, whatever, the <laughs> cart is right there to pump their heart and get them going again. So usually people are only dead a matter of minutes, you know, if they have, a say, a heart attack or whatever. If they die in the hospital, they are revived quickly, usually. And so that's not enough time to decide whether it was the brain breaking down or the medical, you know, the chemicals in the brain or whatever, Mm -hmm. any other thing, you know, the medicines that they have. So, or hallucination, it's not enough time. Another thing is that a lot of doctors that debunk talk about things that happen at the very beginning of the experience, such as the tunnel or, or the light and things like that. But They don't talk about the whole experience. It's just snippets of the very beginning. Another thing, as I've just talked about, is that they they um, come back with information that they could not possibly know. They can describe who came in the room and who left and and um, what what the doctors were even thinking. And that, I think, is pretty amazing <laughs> that they can yes. know that. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that, that, and I have a few in my book, um, there, there's a woman named Stella, and Stella was hit by a car. And um, so she had a death experience, and then the ambulance that was taking her to the hospital got lost. I don't, or got into an accident or something happened that it couldn't continue. And so she had to be moved from, and now she's dead. Remember this, this is a body. Mm-hmm. She's about the, the she, but at this point she's come back down, but she's floating above the ambulance and she's not in the body. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they put her body in a private car and the private car takes her to the, the rest of the way to the hospital. At the time of, I think it was an accident because the woman who was in the back with her, the attendant, lost her ring, and it was a it was a valuable ring for her. It was from her mother, and she treasured that ring. So, but she couldn't find it. She looked and looked and couldn't find it. So when she came, when uh, Stella was revived, and this girl that was in the back with her came to visit. Stella was able to tell her where her ring had fallen, so she was able to go and get it. And mm-hmm. Stella was, and the fact that even that, that Stella knew that the ring had fallen was, you know, like she shouldn't have known that. She knew that she'd been transferred to a private vehicle, and she described the people that 
that drove, you know, it brought her the rest of the way. So she knew a lot of stuff that she could not possibly know. That, that, how would she have known all of that? Sometimes doctors will um, come to the uh, patient after they've come back, through an, if they've died in an operation, and then they come back. And they will tell the doctor what he was thinking or what, mm-hmm. what, uh, what was happening in his personal life, which they shouldn't know. <laughs> no, and, no um, certainly not. So it's things like that. And, uh, and besides that, they will meet relatives or loved ones <clears throat> on the other side that they've never met before and be able to come back and tell things about that person that they couldn't possibly know. They've never met them before. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things, I, I and and also the hours that people could be dead for 14, 13, 15 hours. You know, another one was a, the longest recorded death experience is twenty nine hours, and this I think it's twenty nine or twenty seven. I I think it's twenty nine. Yeah, regardless, a long time. Yeah, and and what this was a sailor, and he was out. Um, he was diving, deep deep sea diving, mm-hmm. and um, with some cut buddies, and uh, he stepped on a poison coral. And so his buddies immediately got him to the boat, but by the time they got him in there, he was gone. Yeah. Anyway, for some reason, maybe it was the brain thing that you're talking about, um, for some reason the doctor, the, the ship's doctor, put EEG on his brain and left it, just left it Mm -hmm. running. And when the man came back, there was the the ticker tape kind of thing all across the floor, still going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he had been dead for 28, 29, I think, is what I remember. But Mm -hmm. it might have been 27. Anyway, it's a very long time. (laughs) Yeah. All completely flat on the EEG reading the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So those those are the ones that convince me. Yeah. So the, for for all these experiences, the one thing that you'll hear so often from people that are against um, the conclusions that we we make regarding near death experiences is that these are anecdotal. They don't have value in terms of evidence. Right. Yeah. What, what would you think about that? Well, it's, it is anecdotal if the person is outside of the hospital and dies. That's true. Mm-hmm. If, like Stella. Stella was, you know, she was hit by a car. Or if a person who dies outside of a hospital, then they don't have the records. But a person who dies inside the hospital and doesn't come back and then comes back hours later, mm-hmm. they, they have all the records. Everything is written down. So mm-hmm. to me, that isn't anecdotal. It's only anecdotal what happened while they were gone. But they did die and they did come back. And they can come back with information they didn't, shouldn't know or have. So yeah. that to me is pretty, pretty amazing. It is. And to me, it would be, as you say, anecdotal as well, even if it included veridical perception, unless a third party was able to then verify that that veridical perception took place, like a doctor or a... Which is why I'm, I'm 
try and push um, Titus Rivers and others' books, The Self Does Not Die, which uh-huh. has a lot of which has a lot of ridicule perception. And to me, that's not anecdotal because they have been confirmed by third party yeah, exactly. individuals. Um, yeah. And you know, just to, for the record, I am a believer that near death experiences are genuinely real. But I, I always try to look at a more f- a physical explanation first, and if there isn't one. Mm-hmm then that to me becomes a strong Good. case, which is Good. why Dr. Eben Alexander's impressed me and things like that. So the individual who was out for the 29, 28 hours. Yes, that's recorded. Did did he have, he, he had a near-death experience, presumably? Yeah, as a matter of fact, in my book, I, I explain about the near, or near, that was Dr. Um, Moody, um, in 1975, that first wrote about death experiences. And he said near because he didn't think the people that died. He thought that they were almost dead. And so that's why he calls them near-death experiences. But um, And so that's caused a lot of confusion because people who have died and come back say, there was nothing near about it. I died. <laughs> you know? And there's yeah. proof that they died in the hospital. And they're in the morgue, for heaven's sake. You know? Mm. Mm. And then, of course, you get into the the argument of well, is clinical death the way we define death actually death? And people say it's not death until they never come back again. And if they do come back, then it's yeah, by definition yeah. near death. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and that that there's no argument against that. You know that yeah. that's true. That you know, I guess that's well, a true yeah. point. I mean, to, to me, if if the brain. The brain is, is the key thing for me with death. And if, if the brain is registering activity which is not sustainable for consciousness, to me, a, a consciousness experience shouldn't then happen. And if it happens during that period, mm-hmm. regardless, right, if, yeah, if, exactly. regardless of if, if the person is dead or not, that doesn't matter. It's how you define it. But if that brain should not be creating consciousness, then it is. Yes. That's the thing that worries me, not whether they were actually dead or not. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't think it's sort of like you can't prove something. You can't prove a negative. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot prove that, that, and you can't prove spiritual stuff either. There's no mm-hmm. way that there's absolute diagnosable experience um, um, proof, except if the person has experiences like even Alexander, or you know. Um, or the fellow that was gone for 20, 29 mm-hmm. hours, you know. There there was a, a woman, um, there's two other ones that I, I don't know if I had them both in there. It was one, a girl, she's a young girl, and I, she was suffering from something. I don't remember what. Anyway, she overdosed in pain med- medication, I think it was. And um, anyway, she was gone for 13 hours, and, mm-hmm. um, and she was in rigor mortis when she came back. And then, um, and and that's all recorded. And uh, then there was, um, uh, I can't remember the other one now, I've forgotten, sorry. That's okay. I suppose the only question that can be raised there is, did the experiences these people experienced take place when mm-hmm. we know the, the brain's mm-hmm. not working, or could it have taken place mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. after it was ramping up? Yeah. And the thing that that goes back to what I was talking about before, where there are some things that happen to most people, almost everybody, 
And the oneness is one of them, you know, where mm-hmm. they, they feel that they're connected. But there's other things. And so if they if they talk about, if all of these people talk about the same thing over and over and over, then you start to go, wait a minute, there's something mm-hmm. here. Especially if people from different cultures are experiencing things, maybe slightly differently, but the core mechanics are still yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. So, 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 so do you think that there's a connection between say psychedelics who when people take psychedelics gen- generally they experience also very very similar things like dimethyltryptamine lsd that sort of mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. they all also experience this oneness they f- they see entities they experience geometric patterns um with slight differences but again the core concepts are there so do you think there's a link between psychedelics and the, the death experience um well i would i would say no but I do understand the question because, as you've said, there are some elements that are the same. But there, there's not enough. It's sort of like the doctor saying, well, DMT, which is a, a, a medication, um, will give the person a similar experience to death experience. But it's not a death experience, and I can identify them right away. You know, if I'm reading, um, unless a person does is as knowledgeable um, as I am about death experiences and can fake it, <laughs> I guess that's possible. <laughs> you know, then they would know what not to put in there or what to put in there. But, um, but I wouldn't, I don't think, I don't think I want to look at it from a negative perspective because I think that there's just too many. It's 2,500 and there's so yeah. many similarities, you know, I, I just can't accept it's, that they might not be true. No, it's it's certainly at that point it is definitely worth considering, and and unfortunately a lot of people won't even consider the possibility. Yeah, 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 and and some 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 people, if you if it isn't black and white, then it's not it's not real, and I That's respect right. that, but. That's not where I'm coming from. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's a perfectly good way of looking at the world, especially because everything we've discovered has been material in nature, but that, that doesn't then follow that everything that does exist is completely material. There may be other aspects of reality we don't know, and, and therefore using the black and white empirical yeah. method works for yeah. day-to-day yeah. life, although there may be things beyond that. And it's being yeah. open to consider that possibility, I suppose, which a lot more people are now. As opposed yeah. to how they used to be. Yes, since yes. Moody's people book. are much more open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and one of the things that people ask me is, um, what's the right religion? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a question that's asked on the other side. The only, and the answer is that everyone is the right religion, except if it's teaching judgment and hate. Mm-hmm. If it teaches those kind of things then that's not, that just doesn't belong. It doesn't fit. Yeah. I recently had a, had a conversation with um, a guy who's a Christian apologist. Very, okay. very clever, very clever person. And I, I raised the question to him, something that I've never understood about Christianity and religions that preach a similar thing, is that, um, take Christianity, for example, you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who gave his life to to save us and it doesn't matter if you're good or bad from a human moralistic point of view if you don't believe and if you don't 
put your life over to Jesus, you go to hell. And that That's I could right. never, I could never understand the fairness no. or the morality in that. Yeah, and and that's the kind of thing that uh, that I'm talking about when when there's judgment, and mm-hmm. because there's no judgment on the other side. Well, if you think about it, okay, look at it from just a very very basic basic point of view. Um, so Christians and and we we mentioned Christians, but there's others um, who believe that God is the creator. Okay, or mm-hmm whatever word they call it, doesn't matter what word they call it, mm-hmm. there is something, a higher being, that is the creator. But if there's a creator, and there's nothing else, because if there is something else, that's not the creator. Um, if, the, if the creator is creating, what is it creating from? It doesn't have anything else. There's nothing else there. No, It has no. to create from itself. And so if it's creating from itself, that means that everything is of essence of the source. Mm -hmm. And that means that we are the source, or that the source is at least that much. And God, we've been told for hundreds and thousands of years that God is love. And, And now we're having these kind of messages coming back and telling us God is love. And um, so that means that on the other on the other side, when people die, they the source does not know anything else but love. It cannot judge. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. It it does. We have to look at what we've done. That part is true, but it isn't in a way of oh you're very bad. As a matter of fact, if we start criticizing and coming down on ourselves. The message usually is, uh, well, don't get too upset. You're just, it's just a learning experience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, the majority of those that experienced the life review have said that if there is any judgment taking place, it's not from a God or from a spirit guide that's or right. from no, an angel a... telling you you are bad. You, yeah, that's it's, right. it's self-judgment. Yeah, it's our own, our own feeling of, of judgment to what we've done, yeah. And mm-hmm. and that goes for the good things, too, you know. We don't only see the bad things. We see good things that we've done, and we feel good about it. You know, the soul feels very joy, great joy, at seeing that they did something really good. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine recently became very frightened. She she suffers with anxiety like I do, um, kind of like I did back when I, when I had a breakdown, when I was very bad with it. She's kind mm-hmm. of at that level. And she was terrified that she was going to go to hell because she's heard of experiences, near-death experiences, in which people have gone to hell. And, yes. And there are many of them. Yes. Uh, it's just the, certainly it's the minority, 2%. but they do exist. Yeah. It's about exactly. 2%. So why do you think that these people experience the hell that may be found uh-huh. in religions? Sure, sure. Okay, well, what what happens when a person finds himself in a negative experience, and we use hell as one of them, um, then they will plead to get out of there. They will plead, you know. Well, actually, they don't. They put up with it for a while before they start mm-hmm. thinking, well, gee, maybe I can get out of here. <laughs> and yes. um, anyway, they, they, they will either realize that they can get out of there, or they will plead and ask to be taken out. 
And every single time that a person asks, they're out. That's instantly, instantly they're gone. They're out of there. Mm. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when they're out, now they're on the other side and they're in the love and all of that. And they'll say, what was that all about? And they are repeatedly told that they created that experience themselves. That's mm-hmm. what they thought that they should experience because that's what they felt about themselves. Right. So it's a self-created environment based on their expectations. Yeah. yeah. Which, and which so is, that's yeah. back to me saying that we're the creators of our experiences. Mm-hmm. And as I was, was going to say, it, it also lays testament to the uh, the fact that we do create our environments after death as astral projectors also experience yes. Um, yes. during their yes. out-of-body experiences, that yes. it can work both ways on a, on yes. a more subconscious level. So it seems that the mind is very, very fundamental to our experience after death. Uh, Yeah, yes, I don't know, um, because we don't have a mind. I mean, people go, when very frequently when people leave their body, they see their body lying wherever they they left it, okay, in a bed or on the ground or something. And But they still bring an ethereal body with them. But that's only because they think that that's they they have to have a body, you know. They think yeah, because that that's, that's all they know. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. But after they've been gone for a while, then they start to realize. Well, not everybody, and I must confess that that probably the majority don't get to the point of the, at least the near death experiences. The one that come back don't get to the point of seeing themselves as spirit. But mm-hmm. some people do. Some people see that, that that they're a spark of light or that they don't have a body and they recognize that they're a spark of light. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see sparks of light around them. And they'll recognize that that spark of light over there has has the essence of my father or my uncle or whatever, you know. <clears throat> so, but but they still, they, they don't, they have this understanding that, this is what they are. This is their reality. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it's a very difficult thing to comprehend from a human standpoint, what it's like to be just, I suppose, yeah. a speck of yeah. awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And so they'll, 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 um, that's why the blind can see and, and, the, and the deaf can hear and the, and the uh, disabled can walk or jump or dance or whatever. Yeah, do whatever yeah. they want because they don't have a body. They're not body. That that's that's an illusion. They've created mm. it. So I wonder how in a in an out of body state we can still have the senses that we know are required from a body. You know, you need eyes to see. You need working mm-hmm. eyes to see and working ears to hear. So I wonder why, when out of body, we still have the ability to do that without the organs that are needed. Um, because we're creators. That, that's the main point of my book when, uh, is the, the consciousness, actually, and that there's only one consciousness and that we're part of that. We are that consciousness. And, mm. um, and so that's part of our reality. So, so what do you think, then, if um, we we damage our eyes or any of our senses and, and we go blind. If, yes. if in an out-of-body state we can see clearly, how come do you think we can't override kind of the the, the, the damage 
and see. Okay, well, there actually we 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 probably could. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was just talking to somebody yesterday, and they were talking about experiments that are being done with children, where they blindfold the children, and the children mm-hmm. can still see. So that and and also they can hear acutely, like they've got acute hearing, but they mm-hmm. can actually see while they've got the blindfolds on, and that's that's crazy. But it's, and I'm not sure that an adult would be able to do that. But, um, but, but Anita Morjani's book, I don't know if you've, have you interviewed her? Uh, I'd like to. I need to get in contact with her. I doubt she'd be, <laughs> she, she's yeah. very well known. She, I doubt she'd be around. Well, she died of, um, of stage four lymphoma. I don't know the Hodgkin's lymphoma it was. Um, cancer and so Mm -hmm. she she was and she was really really in bad shape um but when she realized how beautiful and magnificent she was and that she had the power to create this she said that that just that did it she she healed herself Mm -hmm. and that's what uh, another thing she talked about which i absolutely love is that there's this warehouse with um, and the warehouse is absolutely enormous. I mean, it's just huge, and we can only see a little tiny speck of it, and that's what we choose from. But we've got tons and tons of other choices that we could make that we don't even know about yet. Yes, and Ethan Morgiani's experience—that's uh, dying to be me, isn't it? In fact, in fact, when I think about it, that would be a good person because she she was she was dead she was there was no way that yes. she wasn't dead you know and yes. um so uh that would be a good person for you to talk to about the authenticity of um of near death experiences yes i must try and get in contact with her i i do like these experiences that are as we say we we know that they were dead during the time because i always as I say try to look for a physical explanation first yeah. Because yeah. Other, yeah. otherwise, there's no not much point in looking at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's yeah. fair. The only other thing that I would like people to understand is how magnificent they are. We just really are so down on ourselves all the time, and and we are way, way, way better than we ever thought we are, and we can do far more than we think we can do. And um, I just think that we need to realize that, you know, to just to give ourselves a chance because we just are so fast to criticize and be down on ourselves, and we've got so much more to give to ourselves and to the world. Brilliant. And your book is is The Wonder of You, What the Near-Death Experience Tells You About Yourself. Yes. Um, and, um, so you can find that. And I, I'm on Facebook, mm-hmm. Lynn Russell, and I'm on um, LinkedIn, and I'm on Twitter. And Twitter is um, ArtSoul2 is what my name is, ArtSoul2. And, um, and I'm also going to be very any day now i'll have a website up so, and it'll Perfect. be under lynnkrussell.com lynn 